works in practice. Oh, haha. All right. Man, that's hard to see. Check this out. This is a butterfly gate. Olivia, have you ever seen a butterfly gate? It's, it's a latch on a gate, and it lets you have a gate that will open on one side, and then you can slam it shut, and you can open it on the other side, and you can slam it shut. Isn't it exciting? Yeah. No, one honest person in the bunch is like, no, no, it's not. All right. It's not that interesting until you know the story. Let me tell you a story. My grandfather, Albert Hooten, was the first general manager at the Wildlife Safari. And uh, before he left for the weekend, he was working on a gate latch for the tiger pen. And he came back in on Monday morning to find a note on his desk saying, we had a small incident in the tiger pen this weekend. You know, there are certain phrases and reports that you can just let go as a manager. Small incident in a tiger pen is not one of those. So he went to ask what happened. Well, when dealing with large furry creatures that can eat you, you need to be a little bit careful. So how they, how they managed the, the care of this tiger is that they had a, like the, the kennel or whatever you call it where you keep tigers had three rooms in it. And so you would open up the doors and have food in one section, and the tiger would go in and eat, and then you'd close the door. So the tiger's locked in there, and then the person could come and clean out the kennel, you know, put out fresh straw and fresh food. You know where the story's going already, don't you? Well, one day, they were getting ready to clean out the tiger pen. So they opened the door, the food was out, the tiger goes in to eat the food. And in comes the worker to clean out the tiger pen. And he's mucking out the stalls when he realizes that he forgot to shut the door on the tiger. And that large tiger peeks his head around the corner and sees food. (laughs) Now, I don't know what you're supposed to do if you ever face to face with a wild tiger. But this guy dropped to the floor, covered his neck, and played dead. And the tiger came to see what's up. Started kind of patting, like, you going to move? You going to run? You going to be food? And after a little bit, he got bored and went back to eat the food in the other side of the kennel, at which point the guy started running. At which point the tiger peeked his head back around the corner and saw a dude booking it for the gate for all he's worth. And tigers, they have instincts. And when they see someone that looks like food running like food does, here comes the tiger. And now we have a chase on our hands. Man versus tiger. And it was a good thing that it was kind of a small, you know, place because a man's beelining it for that gate, which had a butterfly latch on it, can slam shut from either side. And he runs through the gate and he gra- through the gate, grabs the gate, throws it behind him, and the gate swings shut as a tiger in leap lands on the fence. And uh, that was a small incident in the tiger cage over the weekend. See, butterfly gates. A lot more interesting when you know the story. How about the Ark of the Covenant? How about the table of showbread? How about a golden lampstand or menorah? 
For many of us, we're reading through the scriptures, and it's been this wonderful, engaging story, and all of a sudden, we arrive at this ancient architectural blueprints, and try as we might to be the devoted Christian we know we want to be, our zeal for this particular um, chapters of scripture <laughs> somewhat wanes. And I go, it's not my favorite. And maybe we fall off, but this morning, I'm hoping to let you know that that this stuff is a lot more interesting when you know the story. And hopefully, by the end of today, I'm hoping that you will see a story of grace in this ancient architectural blueprints and details. And you're like, grace? And I said, yes, that's, that's what I'm hoping that you're going to see. So to get there, let me briefly introduce you to the story. Now, the creator God of heaven and earth made a good land, and he gave it to humans to steward it and to tend it, and we rebelled against them. And you guys know the story. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Humanity fell, and things just got worse from there. God had a plan to rescue and redeem and bring his blessings to the world through the family line of Abraham that became the nation of Israel. They have been rescued now from Egypt. They have gone through the wilderness, and they're at Mount Sinai encountering God, and they just entered into a covenant with him. At which point we enter to this last section of the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40. And it has this mirror pattern. Um, Fancy technical name is a chiasm. And this is a popular literary form that the biblical authors especially love to use often. So pay attention. And it's kind of like a sandwich. Good stuff, most often in the middle or at the ends. So in chapters 25 through 31, we had the instructions for the tabernacle. And this morning, we get to read about the construction of that tabernacle. And there's a lot of stuff that's just almost verbatim, repeat. In between that, there's these two descriptions of Sabbath day regulations. And then last week, we were in chapters 32 through 34. A covenant was broken, God's character was revealed, and the covenant was remade. Remember the the whole disaster that was the golden calf incident. And the Israelites and we as readers come face to face with the nature and character of God. He is, well, who he is. Yahweh, the I am who I am, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin, and yet who by no means clears the guilty, repaying the sins of the father to the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is the God of love and justice, both. So now God in chapter 25 told Moses and the people of Israel, I'm going to come live with you. I'm going to set up a tent in your midst. So here's, here's what my home needs to look like. It needs to picture on earth what it looks like in heaven. And we're all excited. God's going to move in with his people, and then they go and make an idol for themselves, a golden calf. And we read about this tent of meeting that's located outside of the camp, and we're like, that's just not what we were hoping for, and it seems as if this whole construction project is off. But God remakes the covenant with Israel. And so when we read uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. When we read in chapter 35 that they start building it, one is we should realize this is a story of grace. God is moving ahead with this plan to move in among these broken people. Something else that we're going to see is in 25 through 31, the centerpiece was on the priesthood. 
the seven uh, aspects of clothing that Aaron the priest would wear, and a seven-day ordination festival. We're going to see how that plays out. So, hard to make a rainbow. I'm not very good at it. But the right-hand side is the order in the first section, 25 through 31. And then on the left-hand side is the order in the section we're in this morning. And you can see they're not exactly in the same order. The purple and the red are intermixed. You know, the, the red, the orange, the arc table and lampstand, those things are in the same order. But the big thing to note is that for some reason, the priestly garments were moved dead last and we have no ordination ceremony. We're going to talk more about that in the future. So chapter 35, we're going to pick up in verse 4 and we're going to focus on the story in which we find all of these details. Now Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what Yahweh has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for Yahweh. Everyone who is willing is to bring to Yahweh an offering of gold and silver and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, that's white linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, whatever that may be. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. I mean, you could basically just take what he said back in chapter 25, pick it up, drop it here. It's nearly verbatim. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything Yahweh has commanded. And so then there's a list. And again, this list parallels the list in chapter 31, but they're not exactly the same. Once again, the priestly garments are put last. And now, right after a story of Moses having to veil his face, now the veil is listed as one of the pieces of furniture that you need to make sure to build. Well, then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them. They came and they brought an offering to Yahweh for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and they brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches and earrings, rings and ornaments, and they all presented their gold as a wave offering to Yahweh. Like, God, look, look, we've brought this for you and for this work. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, or ram skins dyed red, or the other durable leather, they brought them. And those presenting an offering of silver or bronze, they brought it as an offering to Yahweh. And everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work, they brought it. And every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill, they spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to Yahweh free will offerings for all the work Yahweh through Moses had commanded them to do. Like, and, and these people brought this, and these people brought this, and we're just going down the shopping list, and they brought this, and they brought this, willingly, generously, everyone contributing what they had to contribute. And then Moses said to the Israelites, See, Yahweh has chosen Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur from the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. That's pretty cool. Bezalel is the first person in all of Scripture we're told is filled with the Spirit of God. And what is he to do? He's filled with the Spirit of God to build a place for God to dwell. 
He's filled with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others, not only to do it themselves. These are spirit-empowered teachers. And he has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work, as engravers, designers, embroiderers of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. And so Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom Yahweh had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary will there to do the work just as Yahweh has commanded. In the first section, it was according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. And now we're told according to what God has commanded, what Yahweh has commanded. And so Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom Yahweh had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people, well, they continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. Just wake up and like, you know, I've been thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, I can give this too. And, and they bring it for the work. And so all the skilled workers who were doing all the work of the sanctuary, all those people who were getting the job done, they had to stop what they were doing leave their work, and go and say to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work Yahweh commanded to be done. And so Moses had to give an order, and they sent the word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had given was more than enough to do all the work. This is fantastic. I mean, you're going to talk about an offering and a building project uh, for God, and it's not, it's not this guilty, shame on you kind of thing. It's you guys have an opportunity. This is a story of grace. Remember, God was going to just send you away from here. He was going to give you the land of Canaan, but he wasn't going to come with you. But because of the intercession of Moses, God says, okay, we're going to do this again. God is moving into the neighborhood, and the people are thrilled. And they're willingly giving And what are they giving? Well, they're giving the treasures of Egypt. They were a nation of slaves. This isn't their money. This is the money God has already given them. And God apparently gave them so much that they had to be told, stop it. We have have too much. And I just imagine the, the real efficient, loving people who are getting the job done, hating the fact that I've got to put down my work and go have a conversation to say, I just, I need stuff to stop piling up. There's just too much now. All right, everyone, no more giving. And what's really cool is these treasures of Egypt in chapter 32 were used to build an idol. And that got destroyed. But now the treasures of Egypt are building a place for God to come and dwell with his people. This is a gift of grace. And so we hear about it. They built this, and they built this, and they built this, and they built this. And again, the order is a little bit different. Again, the priestly garments are put last. And in chapter 30, we're told about a census that's supposed to take place. Here in chapter 38, we're told about the materials collected from that census, which we will not read about until Numbers chapter 1, just to let you know kind of timetable. And, and we're told the people of Israel, they brought over 2,193 pounds 
of gold. They brought over 7,500 pounds of silver. They brought over 5,000 pounds of bronze to build this tent. Now, this is a prefabricated, you know, mobile building. So all of the, you know, gold, silver, and bronze not only is brought and given to God, but then will be moved from one place to another. This is quite, quite the endeavor to carry God with them and to be led by him. And we culminate with those priestly garments that were moved last. And again, if you ever find in Scripture that a list seems to be duplicated, and you remember that some scribe had to you know, pay for leather or parchment and for ink, and had to write out longhand each individual letter, and you realize that the biblical authors, they they did not put extra words in the Bible. So everything's there for a reason. Why is this list here twice? Is there any differences that I can see? Is there any significance? And again, they're, they're nearly exactly the same, except for the gold plate that says, Holy to Yahweh has been moved. And not only is it the final piece of clothing listed for Aaron the priest, it is the final thing in the entire tabernacle construction to be made. And so at the end Oh, yeah, sorry. So, yeah, I just said that. But not only is it the last priestly garment, I mean, it's the last of everything. And so all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. And the Israelites did everything just as Yahweh commanded Moses. If you see it highlighted from here on out, would you read it with me? Because you're going to hear this a couple times. And then they brought the tabernacle to Moses. The Israelites had done all the work just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And Moses inspected all the work, and he saw that they had done it, just as Yahweh had commanded. As a brief explanation, if you see the Lord, and it should be all in caps online from the website I copy and pasted. It's in all caps, but they're really little, and so my computer didn't recognize that font. So it's, it looks like the Lord. Uh, it's, a, it's a convention. If you don't feel comfortable saying Yahweh, you can just read the Lord and we'll, we'll hand, handle it. And so Moses blessed them. They completed the work. Moses saw all the work. And look, it was done just the way Yahweh commanded. And Moses blesses them. And so the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month of the second year. They've been out of Egypt now nine months, approximately. Or I should say almost a year. Uh, and they've been at Sinai for nine months. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, he erected the frames, he inserted the crossbars, he set up the posts, and then he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and he put the covering over the tent, as Yahweh commanded him. And he took the tablets of the covenant law, and he placed them in the ark, and he attached the poles to the ark, and he put the atonement cover over it, and then he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and he hung the, hung the shielding curtain and shielded the Ark of the Covenant law as Yahweh commanded him. And Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain. And he set out the bread of the presence before Yahweh as Yahweh commanded him. And he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he set up the lamps before Yahweh as Yahweh commanded him. And Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain. 
and burned fragrant incense on it as Yahweh commanded him. And then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and he offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as Yahweh commanded him. And he placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and he put water in it for washing, and Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. We're we're assuming a priesthood has been ordained. That hasn't happened yet in the story yet. And they washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as Yahweh commanded Moses. And then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, and he put up the curtains at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And there was much rejoicing. Because this is an Eden-like high point for the first time. I mean, again, God was kind of up there on top of Mount Sinai, and that was pretty distant. But now, the creator God of heaven and earth has moved into the local real estate to live among his people again. And a special place prepared for him. And so now God and humanity are living at peace here at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God's glory is filling the temple. This is awesome. And so we have this creation-recreation moment. There's echoes of of Eden, just as in the beginning when God created the heavens and earth in seven days, so in seven statements, Moses builds the tabernacle. Seven times it says, as Yahweh commanded him. And Moses, they finished the work, just as God finished his work on the seventh day. And there's an inspection. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Moses saw all the work, and behold, it was just as Yahweh commanded. It was very good. And God blesses his creation, and Moses blesses the people of Israel. And in both of these construction projects, the Holy Spirit plays a role, hovering over the waters of the deep, filling Bezalel and empowering the work. And of course, both of these stories happen right before a terrible false story just as we heard about the tabernacle and then we had the golden calf incident and now we have the construction of the tabernacle i wonder what's gonna happen next see the cloud covered the tent of meeting the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle and moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of yahweh filled the tabernacle And in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted up from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. And so the cloud of Yahweh was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. The enemy, the Lord blessed the reading of his word. We're going to end on a bit of a cliffhanger this morning. All right, so what, what do we see? Well, first the parallels. In in 25 through 31, seven times, it says, And Yahweh said to Moses, here's what you're to build. In 35 through 40, 25 times it says all that Yahweh had commanded. Seven times it says they, they built Aaron's garments as Yahweh commanded Moses. And seven times as Moses is setting up the tabernacle, it says as Yahweh commanded him. There's echoes of Eden all throughout this. 
We see the people, they're giving to God with generous hearts. Six times it lists that. Women are singled out and highlighted as being part of the work. They're giving generously. They're serving generously. They're contributing what they have and their skills to build a place for God to live. And Exodus ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle, just as it began with the people of Israel filling the land of Egypt. It's a creation blessing. But Moses can't go in. And we are so used to reading this, or sorry, let me, forgive me. I am so used to reading it that I needed someone to point out how odd that is. Moses, who literally saw the afterglow of, of the glory of God and came off the mountain transformed. Moses, who was told by God in chapter 25 through 31, I'm going to speak to you from between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. It anticipates a time that Moses and God will have face-to-face, so to speak, conversations in the tent of meeting, is what it's called. And now when God finally shows up, Moses is not allowed to enter because something has happened. Now that God has moved from the top of the mountain and now lives in the midst of this sinful people, we can only presume this is because of the sin of the golden calf. Something needs to happen so that Moses himself will be able again to encounter the presence of God. Welcome to the book of Leviticus, the solution to our problem. We're going to get there next week. Leviticus begins with God speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. Moses is out there, God is in here, and God is talking to him. When we get to the book of Numbers, God will be speaking from within the tent of meeting. Moses gains entry back into the presence of God. Leviticus is part of a story, and it answers the problem, uh, and it solves the problem of access to the presence of God. It's also the kind of the highlight key point of the entire Torah. I know, shock of all shocks, Leviticus of all places, really. Yeah, I'm excited to get there next week. Something to point out. The tabernacle is set up on the first day of the first month of the second year. Numbers chapter 7, meaning we finished, Leviticus, we finished Exodus, we went through the entire book of Leviticus. We're now in the first seven chapters of Numbers. Numbers 7 begins, on the day the tabernacle was set up. So the narrative time is exactly the same. It's the same day. If the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis covered a period of 1,600 years, the section from Exodus chapter 40 through Numbers chapter 9 covers about a week, maybe a little bit more. So when it comes to information God thought important for his people to know and meditate on, there is as much time spent here during this week at Mount Sinai as is spent from Jesus' triumphal entry to his resurrection. Loosely, if this is not a key study, I just counted pages in my Bible, like 38 verses 40. Approximately the same amount of time is spent at Sinai inaugurating the tabernacle as Jesus during Holy Week. Leviticus matters. That's my short point to that. And let's talk about the high priest in the room. Because it feels like a, a, a giant elephant. Really, Aaron, this guy, the one who made the golden calf, 
perhaps, you know, sinner extraordinaire. He was the leader left in charge, and he led the people to essentially, like, have an adulterous affair during the honeymoon with God while Moses is up on the mountain. He's still the priest? Yeah. And back in chapter 33, we read God rebuking the Israelites, saying, take off those golden ornaments, and I'm going to decide what to do with you. And so the Israelites, they stripped off their ornaments from, at Mount Horeb, and from there on. Because Aaron had said, give me all your gold earrings, and he makes a gold calf with it. So after Sinai, presumably, based on the text, no one else is wearing gold. Except that Aaron dude. Not only does he have gold thread woven into the fabrics of his clothes, he's wearing a gold crown. He is the only Israelite who wears a gold ornament on his head that reads, Holy to Yahweh. That guy? And, you know, it just begs the question, why? Why is the priestly garments the last thing we read about? Why, why was the order shifted? And why is this holy to Yahweh gold stamp to go on his forehead, why is that the last thing mentioned of the entire tabernacle process? Here's my best thought. Because of grace. Because this whole litany is a story of grace. Aaron does not deserve to be there, but he has been clothed in garments of righteousness. He gets to approach God not because he's any good, but because God is very good. Because the, in this case, the clothes really do make the man. And if you wonder, like, why say garments of righteousness? That sounds like biblical talk. Yes, because I'm hoping to cue some of you into that passage in Isaiah. I will praise Yahweh because he's clothed me in garments of righteousness. Or later in the biblical story, the saints will be decked out in white, bright, clean linen pure, unspotted in the sight of God. Aaron doesn't deserve to be there, and I think that's the whole point. Do we know the nature and character of the God that we serve? He is gracious. And the tabernacle plan with even Aaron as priest, it is still happening. And that's the story I would leave you with. And so what we see this morning is that obedience comes as a response to grace. Why would we give this generously? Why would we do what God commanded? Oh, so that he'll accept us. What, are you kidding? No. It's because he's already accepted you. He's already rescued you from slavery in Egypt. He's already sustained you in the wilderness and continues to sustain you with daily bread and water from the rock. He has already forgiven you of all your major screw-ups and sins. And now he wants to come live with you. That's why you obey him. It's not a precursor to his favor. It is, it is a response to his favor. And blessings come. Blessings come when the people, empowered by God's Spirit, willingly give themselves to the work and to the worship of God. They are blessed. Their life is filled with abundance. The goodness of God comes to his people because they've done his work his way. So here's my main idea. Because of God's grace, we are blessed as we joyfully obey God's commands. Because of grace, we obey. Because of what he's done, we respond in obedience. This is what brings blessings to us. See, I told you double latch gates were exciting. You just needed to know the story. But what if I told you about something else that many people think is pretty boring? 
How about a church? How about a gathering of a bunch of strangers or pseudo-friends on a given Sunday morning that we attend? And, and many people these days, Christians, uh, sometimes more than anyone else, are like, eh, church, kind of boring. Take it or leave it. And I would propose this morning that it's only boring because you don't know the story that well. See, what if, what if God wanted to dwell among people? And what if he made these people priests who were clothed in garments of righteousness that were not their own? That we get to live with God not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. And what if he gave us spirit-empowered teachers and spirit-empowered workers, both men and women, bringing what they have, both skills and tangible items? And what if he invited us to build his temple, his tabernacle, a place for him to dwell with humanity, the church, with precious things like gold, silver, or precious gems, as the Apostle Paul refers to the good works that we do and the ways that we love one another. What if those things were true? Then, then maybe being part in building the church would be a lot more exciting to us. Maybe we would recognize with joy and generous hearts that when we show up to love and serve the people who share our common faith in Jesus Christ, we have been invited into a redemption story far beyond anything that we've imagined. What if this crazy mystery actually is true that when we gather together as a bunch of reasonably well-smelling people on a Sunday morning, that God's presence mysteriously is made known in a way that it cannot be when we are on our own? What if? What if the person sitting next to you or behind you is someone who will one day stand in immortal glory in the presence of God and you get to have a hand in making that happen? And bringing what God has given you and using it to prepare a place for God to dwell with people, that is the church. Not a building anymore. Not, not a thing of brick, stone, and drywall. But now human hearts, people calling in faith upon Jesus Christ. And so if those things were true, then I would encourage you this morning to get on board by giving and by serving and by celebrating. Celebrating because God really does want to live with his people. Serving because God has generously given us things to use for the benefit of others. So we, we bring our skills, we, we bring our experiences, we show up and we help the, the poor and the lonely and the widow and the orphan, and we just love one another as best we can because apparently that's what God has asked us to do. And we give. We give financially to meet the needs in one another's, in the church, to meet one another's needs. Why? Because God has already abundantly blessed us. And maybe we think, well, I've earned everything that I have. And I would just say, if you can earn money, Thank God, for he has given you the strength to earn it. And if you didn't earn it, well, guess what? You didn't earn it. God has given it to you. And so we love and we serve one another. We give to the needs in the community and without of the community, and we show our generosity. Why? Because God has been generous to us. He's given us everything that we need, and he's promised to give us everything we need. So you don't have to be stingy. And so this morning, because of God's grace, 
we're blessed as we joyfully obey God's commands, or as Jesus says, love one another the way that I have loved you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you to do. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, family of grace, I pray that you would know the grace of God that loves sinful, broken people because of Jesus, that because of God's grace, we would do God's work in God's way, and that as we obey, we would be blessed and find joy and abundant giving and service. So what a gift it is to build this church. Oh, you thought this was boring. My friends, welcome to the story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, thank you for the mystery that somehow, someway, you are putting together a place appropriate for you to dwell, that you want to be with us. God, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve your grace, and we never have. And God, that is the amazing story that you really are a God who who just wants to forgive and wants to bless if we would but trust you. Father, if there are people here who think they don't deserve your kindness, if there are people who are not here and are watching this online because they think, I don't deserve to be there on a church on a Sunday morning, Father, I pray that the story of redemption is never that a holy God can't dwell with a sinful people, but rather that a holy God is finding a way to dwell among a sinful people by making them holy. God, forgiveness is the name of the game. And as you have forgiven us, may we forgive one another. May we live together in unity. And God, may we care about your church as much as the Israelites once upon a time cared about putting together this tent for you to live among them. God, I thank you for Jesus, who's a better prophet than Moses, a far better high priest than Aaron, and a far better worshiper than, than any of us. May we keep our eyes on him and be transformed into his likeness and image more and more together. Amen.